the word oops is almost never a good word. Um, I think the worst place you could hear the word oops is in a nuclear missile silo. But a very close second of that is while you're getting a haircut. It was not supposed to be this short. Um, you know, haircuts are like when you're wood carving, you just keep whittling down until uh, now there's a debate in our home whether it was her or whether I moved. Uh, but needless to say, it forced me to change my whole introduction. Um, I was going to talk about something in my life, but now I have to talk about the Marine Corps. Um, so the debate will continue, trust me. Uh, well, talking about the Marine Corps, if you ever see recruitment commercials for the different armed services, I think you will agree that the Marine Corps recruits differently than the other services do. If you see a commercial for uh, the Navy, the commercial, I mean, and again, everything is, they say a little bit of everything, but this is the real vibe off of a Navy commercial. You'll see the world you'll do something cool, and you'll get to go to college. Join the Navy. And the Air Force has a similar message. You'll get a high-tech training. Um, you'll see neat stuff, and you'll get to go to college. The Army is a little, little more um, Marine-esque, but for the most part, uh, their promise is, and these are very, very thoughtful commercials. Their promise is, we will try, we will turn you into something. We'll make you something bigger. You can be all you can be. You'll get muddy. You'll see a tank, <laughs> and we'll send you to college. That's those three services have that that vibe. The Marine Corps. This is the vibe in their commercial. If you're good enough, maybe you can be a Marine. Totally different. They don't promise college. They invite, you know, and it's targeting young men. They invite these young people to step up. Maybe if you come out, you can share in the honor and carry the insignia of being in the United States Marine Corps. No other services, no other service branch has that mystique about it, that ethos of, of wanting to be a Marine because the idea of being a Marine is, is larger than life. The ethos of the Marine Corps shapes the Marine. The Marine wants to be like the myth. And in fact, we propagate the myth in combat. The enemy knows we send an intentional myth into battle in front of the Marine Corps about what a Marine is so that the towns and villages that they're about to walk into have a myth of what the Marine is and can do and will be. And the Marines live into that. It's a culture. It's an ethos. It is the esprit de corps. It is the spirit of the body that the Marines have. And it's, it's unique. It's unique. Now, that... I don't often say nice things about the Marines. So those of you who are here, simplify and soak it up because it's about the last time. Uh, well, this morning, this is, what the, this is what the marks of the church are. 
the church has a spirit of the body. And every church, every local body exhibits and puts out an ethos or spirit or a vibe or a culture about what it means to be in the family of God. And this morning, I want us to, as we're dealing with the possession of the cross, you're going to want to go individual. And I'm, I want to suggest this morning, this message will, I don't know if it will sound practical at the individual level. Uh, my suggestion this morning is, is that if we, want to be, if we want to change individually, maybe what we need to do is establish an ethos or an esprit de corps or a culture that is correct, which will make us change. Deal with the mood, which might then cultivate the individual. That's what we're going to do this morning with regards to this idea of the possession of the cross. We're going to look at the possession of the cross in relationship to three things this morning. Three things. The first thing we're going to look at is its relationship to the cost of discipleship, to being a disciple. What does it cost for us to be a disciple? That's the first thing. The second thing is we're going to look at it in relationship to a path towards knowing God more deeply. Knowing God more deeply. And finally, we're going to look at possession of the cross as it relates to the satisfaction of God's people who are living in the not yet. And we talk about the already and the not yet. Well, we're in the not yet right now. Is the church satisfied being there? We're going to look at that idea. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. It's page 675 if you're using one of the ones we've provided for you. Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to get my water. We're going to read a lot of verses. We're going to read 10, 5 through 39. And I know it's a lot of reading. I want, you, I want it to fall on you. I want you to feel it. I want it to sink in. If you just need to close your eyes and, and allow it to kind of come into you. Um, this, this segment, you know, uh, this possession of the cross, I'm more convinced the more and more I've studied about it and meditated on it that it is an absolutely pervasive theology that is given by Christ and the apostles, and yet it rarely makes it into the life of the church in real application, in the life of our church, our kind of church. This is Jesus speaking to the twelve before sending them out. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let the peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you 
or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, not a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What I've whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I need to give a qualifier real quick to the text. There's a section here where where Jesus says, I'm not bringing peace but a sword. I want to clarify that real quickly because I'm about to say just the opposite. What Jesus is saying there is he's speaking not to the substance of the message of the gospel, which is a message of peace, but he's saying to his disciples, do not expect that when you bring this message of peace, right, that's what the gospel is, a message of peace, do not expect that when you bring it to the world, it will be received in a peaceful way. That's what Jesus is saying. He's setting his disciples up for the expectation that when, in fact, they preach 
from town to town and village to village and before men and before their families that the response will very likely be anger, fury, and rage and rejection. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't get confused. Just because this message has brought you peace between you and the Father does not mean that it is a balm of peace between mankind because man worships a different God. That's what he's saying there. So I want to I get that, that straight right up front because as we look at this text, and certainly I should expect that conviction has fallen. I, otherwise, you didn't hear it. But what I want us to look at is what the... This is, to me, a picture of the possession of the cross as it relates to being a disciple of Christ. As it relates to the cost of discipleship, this is what possession of the cross uh, looks like. But I want to talk about from this text what it is not. We have in our minds oftentimes pictures of martyrs and of persecution and these sorts of things. This is what the possession of the cross is not. First of all, it is not militant. It's not a jihad that's happening here. It's driven by peace. Verses 11 through 14 say as much. If it's militant, then why is the instruction, you go to a town, seek to find a deserving person. If the house looks deserving, you bless it, you stay there. If they don't want it, how do you fight back? You shake the dust off your feet and you go to another town. That's what you do. We carry a message of love. The second thing it is not, the possession of the cross is not foolhardy. Look at the 16th verse. We are to be as wise or as shrewd as serpents. 23rd verse says this. It says, uh, let me find it. When, they, when you are persecuted in one place, do what? Flee to another. There were times in the early church where there had to, the church had to say to its, many of its young men, stop getting martyred for crying out loud. Because, and I'm certain that some of you will identify with this, sometimes the shortest path to kind of salvific honor is to die valiantly rather than to live holy. And I think that there are, you know, as a young man, man, that would certainly be the more attractive of the two. We can't say that an Islamist suicide bomber, we can't glorify that kind of martyrdom that's foolhardy and it's militant. The kingdom of God is not that way. The kingdom of God is a message of peace that will not be received peacefully, and it is not foolhardy. We live to fight another day. We're strategic. We're thoughtful. We're shrewd. Our goal is is very strategic. It's a global goal. We have the war in mind when we fight the battle, so we know when to retreat and when to try again. You can't get credit for possessing the cross of Christ by being stupid. Be thoughtful. Number three, this possession of the cross is not abandonment. God has not left you. When you are persecuted... It is to be expected. When you are slandered, it's par for the course. When your family is rejecting you, the Lord says, expect that. I'm sending you out to be rejected. Look at this passage. He says uh, in the, let me make sure, in verse 19. When they arrest you, 
Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, it will be given to you what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. In other words, the implication is that the will and purpose of the Lord is to have you arrested, beaten, and brought before the magistrate so that you can testify of the power of Jesus Christ. That is in his plan. You haven't been abandoned. You've been positioned. Fourthly, the thing in this is not, it is not foreign. What I mean to say is, is the possession of the cross is not something that is done by our international missions board. It is very local. It is intimately local. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He has come, and in his coming, and in your message, the Lord is saying here that the rejection and the persecution that may be most significant in your life might happen within the very walls of your home. Many of you know this. Any church that is experiencing conversion, or that isn't simply birthing Christians, but is actually experiencing conversion, knows, knows in its DNA the feeling of you being the lone Christian in a tribe of non-Christians. And trying to figure out, to carefully and thoughtfully figure out, how can I witness of the peace of God in this house when it brings discord? The Lord's not saying it's going to work. The Lord's saying, that's possession of the cross. Some of you may say, well, yeah, well, this is what he said to the 12. I know that. I know that this is the apostles. The apostles. Well, we're the body of Christ. Which is more? The apostles or the body of Christ? How much more, I would say, than the apostles ought the body of Christ display the sufferings of Christ? It is an inescapable analogy. This collective truth has individual implications. I don't know what it means for you personally. It may mean that somebody here does something radical and powerful for the kingdom that is powerful and painful. You know, at 9-11, we had somebody from our church in Afghanistan witnessing among the Taliban. That, why, that should not be beyond the pale of this church. That should not be beyond the pale of these people. Maybe, that, maybe that's you. I mean, doom on me if I don't say that. And maybe somebody here is being hand-selected to do something brilliant and sacrificial in the name of Jesus Christ that will result in painful death. As the church, we have to hope that because it's happening and it's happening from other churches. But maybe that, may, that is not the implication. I'm not implying it's you. I'm just saying, I don't know how it's falling. Maybe it's that, but maybe the implication is, maybe he's calling you to suffer in your marriage with such phenomenal grace and mercy and patience that all the people around you in in that intimate world, in your household, look and go, how is that possible? I don't know which one of those it is or which one of the infinite other things it is in the middle. But collectively, 
This is how we must follow Christ. It needs to be our ethos, our culture, the esprit de corps. The spirit of the body of the church has to know and expect and preach and teach the true cost of discipleship. How much it truly costs to really be a disciple. We cannot preach a cheap gospel with cheap grace. This cannot be, say the name Jesus and you're in. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, say my name when it will cost you everything and you're in. Is that the mood? Is that the ethos of the church? Our church must encourage one another towards a greater following of the Lord. We have to cheer for the right things. We have to see those things and cheer for the right things. We have to hope and pray that radical Christians would come out of here. We have to hope that our children would be better than us. It wouldn't shame us. How much more if they were so much more better? What if every one of our children, every child in that hallway, went off to preach the name of Jesus Christ in a foreign tongue? Would we be a failed church? Ah, I would love to die a lonely death with a bunch of of old people because our kids had fled to go preach the gospel. Listen, if it doesn't happen, this is a warning, a major warning sign that it's not happening. This is something to be conscious of. When the possession of the cross becomes a parachurch hobby of the church. When the suffering and the sacrifice and the doing the difficult deeds that God assigned to the church, when that becomes something that the church funds instead of something that the church does. That is a terrible warning sign. A terrible warning sign. When we are, instead of doing, we are encouraging what do we call it? Real Christians? Disciples to do it? I'm not saying that's us. I'm saying that conviction should always be among us. We ought to want to do everything that Christ has called us to do. The church cannot outsource the work of God. This first idea is to bring the conviction of what the possession of the cross costs the church. This is the, this first idea. I want us to look at the second idea. The idea of the possession of the cross is in relation to how we know the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. I got a page number, I'm sorry. 815. Philippians 3. This one is so good. So the first one. What does it cost to be a true disciple of Christ? As a body, we can preach that much better than we can live it as an individual. It's a mark of the church to preach and teach that well. And I don't mean preach here. I mean among us to carry that idea, to push somebody harder, to say, you can do this. 
Fight for your marriage. Preach the gospel. That's something that you need to do. Okay, Philippians, this is what it means, what it gives us. This is the blessing of the cross. Listen to this. This is Paul. He's writing from prison, and he says this. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's verse 7. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. He considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. He considers everything in this world, you can't even say it gently, it's rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He says, I want to know Christ and to share in the fellowship of his suffering. I want to become like him in his death. Listen, we are not simply the beneficiaries of the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's not what the church is. We're not a basket of blessing. That's the beneficiary simply, simply the beneficiaries of his crucifixion and of his resurrection. We are his body which continues to strive and suffer. Paul says in Colossians, I fill up in my flesh that which is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. In other words, Paul is saying, I suffer and die for the sake of the church because the church ought to be doing these things, ought to be bearing, and in doing it, it comes to know the Lord more richly. We gain the treasure of knowing Christ deeply when we suffer on his behalf. Not foolhardy suffering, genuine, inescapable suffering for being faithful. You do not know the Lord in in any other way as deeply as through this way. Think of your life. The times when you've come to know the Lord so deeply, how often have have they been in the valleys? God gives you himself in the valley, and then you come out. We are called to consider this life rubbish. This is the difference between having a belief and having a living faith. A living faith wants to know God more, would choose to suffer on his behalf so that we might share in his fellowship more deeply. That is a faith that wants to drink of the fount of Christ. It wants to feast on the body of Christ. God is not calling us to have knowledge about him. God is calling us to know him. And we experience him most profoundly through suffering. And you say, maybe you say, well, yeah, but this is Paul. I know it is Paul, but we're the body of Jesus. (laughs) 
there's an individual teaching here. I don't know how to preach it individually. Do you consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ? I know the answer is no. It's my, I know there's things I value. Do I desire tomorrow to look on my possessions and the life given me as rubbish compared to Christ? Yes. Do you value things too much? Your job, your income, your home, your school, your education, your future, all of those things. I mean, this is what I have to say. This is going to be the most biggest of a downer of graduation Sunday. I got to tell you, I like, good job. Really, I, I'm not trying to downplay it. Good job. It's hard work. God bless you. It is rubbish. And I'm serious. I'm serious. Listen, I'm trying to see you, see your faces. Listen, God does not quantify your life based on that diploma or your college. You are nothing apart from Jesus Christ. I don't care if you solve AIDS. I don't care if you send something to the moon or Mars. I don't care if you solve world peace. That is an unquantifiable metric to the kingdom. I hope you're great. I hope you are great in Christ. I hope that you gain a position of prominence among men through your hard work and achievement so that when you are before the governor or the king or the magistrate or the Gentile and you don't have words to say yourself, the Lord would say, don't worry about that because when the time comes, I will speak through you. That's what this is about. Everything else is rubbish. You are living a satanic life if you're doing this for yourself. Happy graduation. (laughs) Is that the ethos of the church? That's the question. I don't know how it lands individually. Is that the question? Do we rally around the right sorts of things? Do we simply rally around the good moments and the praiseworthy moments and the happy times? Or do we recognize that God is truly present in the families and individuals in this church who are suffering? Do we see that's where the cross is being born? Not at the happy times. It's the sad and the mourning and the timid and those who are suffering on account of their faith. They are the ones on whose shoulders the weight of the cross is being bared. Do we recognize that? We know the Lord so much more in his suffering. I say that to tempt you to bear the cross of Christ. I have one more, one more. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. This is to establish a right expectation. The first one is to give us conviction. The second one is to attract us to it, to know the Lord better. And the third one is to give us the right expectation. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, page 793. Now, I've got to give a little background here. Paul is complaining to the church in Corinth because he's, they're doing something that should be very familiar to all of us. They've received the gospel. It's changed their lives. And now they're trying to milk the fruit of Christ for every drop it can give them in this life. They're trying to enjoy the fullness of the kingdom right now in this earth today. That's what they're trying to do. They're in Christ, and in their mind, The glorious blessings of knowing him should be fully realized now. Which perplexes the Apostle Paul. 
Because they think they've arrived is what has happened. They think the church is about Sunday and what they might get. They have not grasped that they are not yet fully reconciled. I mean, they're reconciled in an already sense, but the world and all of what God's doing has not yet been fully realized. This is what he says in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. Just listen to Paul. Imagine Paul trying to figure this out. He's looking at this church that's hunky-dory and happy, and he says, all, this massive cynicism and sarcasm in this text, already you have what you want. He says, already you've become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. How is it that the church often seeks to enjoy and embrace all the fruits of the kingdom right now? Is the job done for God's people? How is it that we are hellbent, and I use that word on purpose, to selfishly apply the blessings of God so that they might come into our lives right now? Here's a, here's a classic way to do it. Every time, every time in your spirit, something's, something's going wrong in your life. Something's not working out in your life. And that might not even be bearing the cross. That might just be the rain falling on the righteous and the unrighteous. But it's happening in your life, and you ask a question like this. It starts with, why would God... I don't mean like, why is the sky blue? Not an inquisitive, but an accusative, why would God? Every time you do that, you're telling God, he owes you more now in his promises than you're getting. Think of this. Every time you do that, it is a bold-faced affront to the holy God. Why would God? Imagine being in his throne room at the feet of his glory. Would you say that? But we want the fullness of his life now. When you pray, is the vast majority of your prayer life centered around your lifestyle? Is your hope always that the message fixes the person next to you so that your life might go well? Do you give to ministries like Americans used to buy their way out of the draft? Do you tithe so that you get more? Or are you at peace with the not yet? We are not yet in the paradise of God. We're not yet there. 
The kingdom of God is not yet realized. The possession of a cross is the wholehearted commitment to our inevitable victory in Christ, but the fact that it has not yet been fully won for us. It's been fully won on the cross, but not fully experienced. Do you ever notice, after the death and resurrection of Christ, Christ leaves, and there's this massive pause between that and the consummation of all time. The end of the end is coming, but the end has been secured by the crucifixion. And in between those two ideas, there's, there's nothing but the church, the body of Christ. Have you stopped to think of the massive purpose that therefore must be in the body of Christ if we are all that's been left with his spirit, right? The spirit is sent into the life of the church and the church is to be sent out into the world to speak and proclaim and testify of his goodness in all, among all peoples in all times, in your home and overseas, in your town and among the government, everywhere you go, that is the goal and purpose of the church is to display what has already been done to a world that has not yet seen it. Instead of waiting for the next blessing. That is our goal. A church that is at peace with the not yet is at peace with what God has called us to do. A church that keeps waiting or wanting All the blessing now for God's kingdom to be here right now is paralyzed to actually do the will of God. This needs to be our ethos. Our ethos needs to be God has placed us on this earth for a purpose. And that purpose is to love him so much that the light shines in a glorious way and it makes everybody want to know. And it blesses the world and places them under strong conviction. Right? It says to the world, there is a Savior, and you are not worshiping the Savior. There is a holy God who will judge all things, and there is one path to grace, to him through grace and mercy. It is through Jesus Christ. We alone are the harbingers of that message. And it is not yet fully given. You know, sometimes we... Oh, brother... Sometimes I'm done. We talk about the hands and feet of Christ. This is what we say. We say we're the hands and feet of Christ. And we say that with a mind of we ought to be going and doing all the things that Christ. I mean, that gives us a little bit. It gets us out the door. It gets us at work. We're the hands and feet of Christ. The hands and feet of Christ. As though the hands and feet of Christ was supposed to feed and heal and help and do all those things. And it was all those things. But that's not what the hands and feet of Christ were designed to do. The hands and feet of Christ were designed to bear nails. That's what the church is designed to do. It's to bear the nails of Christ so that the world can see. There's no other purpose. Amen.